Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. Climate change is presenting so many challenges in our region, but residents across New England are rising to the occasion. Today, we hear from reporters from the New England News Collaborative on new solutions to mitigating climate change. The NENC is spending the entire week spotlighting stories for Earth Day 2023, from green burials to eliminating construction waste and even climate-proofing our agriculture. We'll hear about different innovations that could make big impacts. We also want to hear from you. What are your communities doing to fight climate change where you live? You can join the conversation, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or leave us a comment on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. First up, we're going to hear from Lexi Krupp. She's the science and health reporter for Vermont Public. Thanks, Lexi, for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So we're going to talk about something super interesting this morning, which is the origins of green burials. Um, Can you talk to us about sort of the history of it? And was this once common? Yeah, I mean, thinking about green burials, which is just this idea of letting your body decompose underground is like the oldest tradition ever. Um, And it's still really the custom in in Jewish and Muslim burials. Um, It's pretty new in the last maybe couple hundred years that really America has uh, been pioneered this like embalming, caskets, concrete vaults. A lot of what we associate with like a conventional cemetery now is a is a new is the new thing um so letting your your body decompose underground and like in a shroud or a you know plain um wooden casket or, or you know pine box that's that's uh the way people have been buried for forever so we're obviously going to be talking a lot about climate change and, and stories related to it but was there a reason why this particular angle uh, drew your attention yeah, you know, I um had a neighbor who told me about a um a natural burial she had been to and how really powerful it was. Um and I actually heard that in a lot of um cemeterians I talked to, people in the death care industry, they're like, Yeah, this is, you know, like a good thing for the environment, sure, but like really there's um it's like helpful for people like in, in terms of, you know, this terribly vulnerable time of losing a loved one um, and having this like closure and connection can be, can be really powerful um, and a little more intimate. Um, So that was a a piece of this that, um, yeah, I, I, I got pretty interested in. And so can you sort of walk us through, I think green burials were only recently legalized in certain places, and in many places you have to be buried in a vault and be buried at a certain depth. Can you sort of walk us through that? 
Yeah. Yeah. This is such an interesting history. So um, unlike you're totally right. In a lot of individual cemetery bylaws, there's still these rules on the books that you have to be buried in a concrete vault, which is like a big box of concrete in the ground, underground. Um, uh, like a lot of pollution, actually, if, if you if you think about it. But that, that um, came about year, you know, over a hundred years ago for a couple reasons. Um, one was grave robbing was a, an issue in the late 1800s, early 1900s for um, for medical students looking for cadavers. It was like a, a way to make money to um, to sell these these bodies for um, these medical schools. So that was that was like an issue in in Vermont and and all over um, New England, Mid Atlantic. There's stories of of grave robbers. So that was one way to like protect. Um, these these bodies was to require these concrete vaults um and then there were um there was the development of germ theory like oh like dead bodies like lots of bacteria and like things that are bad for us so so that was another reason to have um to have these vaults and have these depths like um on the books until 2017 in Vermont, you had to bury people six feet, five and a half or six feet deep. Um, and that's like not a great place in the soil to encourage decomposition. It's a little below this active layer of soil where there's a lot of oxygen, there's more heat, there's more like microbes doing their thing. Um yeah, and then and then finally, there's there's a more modern reason why um, some of these rules are still on the books to have these vaults, to have these depths, really the vaults, um, because of lawnmowers. Um, if you are in a vault, um, you're gonna, you're, you know, the ground isn't gonna settle after you know the the body or the casket is decomposed a little bit, so it's going to stay even and level and easier for a lawnmower to go over there and to mow it. So that was like a couple of the things that um, there were, you know, several people in Vermont working to change these rules a couple of years ago, and those were some of the things they kept hearing, like, ah, what about the lawnmowers? So um, they're like, you know, I talked to a woman, she was like, like what we're prioritizing lawnmowers over like how people, you know, want to want to be buried like that's messed up. So. Um, so, yes, that these these laws in Vermont uh, changed in, in 2017. Well, I wasn't thinking that I was ever going to think about lawn mowing and burials. And now you just paint me a very Victorian yeah. gruesome f- picture <laughs> for me to continue with my day. So thank you very much for that. Um, and one because you talked about, you know, cement boxes and we have there's so many, um, you know, it's not great for the environment. But can you also get into embalming? Because that's also something that's really difficult to break down in soil. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, embalming is basically preserving, or, or it's um, you know, it doesn't perfect. It doesn't preserve the body. It's just slowing decomposition. Um, and it's a really powerful thing. And um, you know, especially if there's been trauma to a body, or um, you know, it's 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 something that is like still like if you want to, if your loved one wants to be embalmed, like great. There's no like wrong way to um, I don't know, be to be buried but um there's yeah lots of lots of chemicals in the um in the solutions used formaldehyde um which is not great to have underground um to to you know be 
going into the soil. Um, and there's like, you know, some stats about folks who work in that industry having higher cancer rates and, you know, um, being more sick than the general population. Um, so it's it's not great to be exposed to some of these chemicals, you know, over your lifetime. Um, but that is how like a lot of people do it. So that there's, you know, I think it's helpful to just know that there's like there's an alternative. Um, you don't you don't have to you know do things this way. Yeah. So we kind of talked about, you know, the traditional way of burials. And so can you kind of explain to, you know, what what does green burials um, look like, actually? And where do they take place? Like, do they have to be in a certain type of cemetery, a certain type of location? Can you walk us through that? Yeah. Yeah. So first, I'll tell you about green burials or natural burials, which is um, instead of being five and a half or six feet, it's a little shallower, like three, three and a half feet. Um three and a half, four feet. So that's again, to like encourage this decomposition, um, you've got to be in the right type of soil. So like if you're, if there's a lot of clay, it's not going to work well um, because, you know, bodies, whatever things don't break down well in in clay soil. Um, It's year round. So like basically as soon, very soon after someone dies, they're going to be buried in the soil. Um, and again, that's the tradition in Jewish and Muslim burials, but not always the tradition um, like in Christian burials. And another reason why embalming is is um, a technique that's used a lot is to, um, you know, have that open casket and and to let everyone come and fly in, you know, and 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 um, see this person. So um, so yeah, they're going to want to be buried. Um, any, you know, up in Vermont, it gets pretty cold here, the ground freezes, but, but, you know, year round have those, have those, um, burials taking place. Um, and yeah, you're really, you can have flowers on top of there. Um, you know, whatever, uh, they're usually not mowed very often. Um, yeah, those are, those are sort of the elements. And then what my story was really looking at is how this is becoming, more available at conventional cemeteries. So there's, um, I'm going to give you a stat. In 2015, so not that long ago, there were maybe five cemeteries in all of New England that offered green burials. So this, the, all those things I just talked about, that shallower depth, um, all, you know, and one one piece I missed. But, and, and now, um, in you know 2023 there's well over 70 so it's um something that's becoming a lot a lot more common um a lot more accessible to people that you don't have to drive hours and hours to go to like a special place like it's in you know these 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 things are 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 available like maybe in your town cemetery and if not you can like join your you know cemetery commission in your town and say hey i i want to make this an option and um and it could happen. Um, yeah. And and the last piece I missed with what is a green burial is what you're buried in. So rather than um, a big casket with, you know, metal or um, something synthetic in there, it could be that you're just wrapped in a shroud, like on a pine board or um, maybe a plain, you know, wooden box, no nails, um, something, anything that can can decompose, um, become part of the earth. I know some people um, lay to rest in wicker baskets. So um, yeah, there's a pretty big range of options there. 
I think it's pretty amazing that it's becoming so popular, and especially since we're a lot more environmentally conscious. And and with what you just shared, I think it's the perfect transition. We're going to listen to a clip of an interview that you did with uh, Patrick Healy, who's the director of Green Mount Cemetery in Montpelier and president of the Vermont Cemetery Association, and as well as Jennifer Whitman, who is the former cemetery commission in Callis, Vermont. And let's take a listen. We didn't think it would take off as fast as it would. I'm getting a couple of emails a week from around the state, from how to be buried here or how can we get our cemetery to have natural burials. It's much bigger than I ever thought it would happen because I don't know if it's because it's new or if people are just wanting something very environmentally friendly. All you got to do is one. You do one natural burial and you realize all of the benefits of it for the family, for the land. All of a sudden, it just all makes sense. So with what both of them said, you know, is it more or less expensive to do this, Lexi? Oh, and I'm, I'm sorry, that last quote was actually from Lee Webster, not Jennifer Whitman, but um, she's like pretty big in the, the green burial world. I don't know her exact title, but um, so expense wise, um, in terms of comparing to uh, cremation, which is actually the most common um, way to deal with the dead right now in, in New England and, and across the country, it's well over 50%. But in New England, it's like 70, 80% um, of people who die uh, choose cremation. So um, it depends <laughs> like on uh, like a lot of things, but um, typically if you just are choosing cremation, that's gonna be cheaper. You know, it can be um, a couple hundred dollars. Um, if you are choosing cremation and then a burial plot to to have those where those um, cremated remains um, will be, uh, it, you know, the, the often burial plots will will be over a thousand dollars. So so that could be on par with um, like the cost of a green burial. But I've seen um, between two and three thousand dollars in in Vermont um, as the you know range here. There's definitely more expensive um, uh, cemeteries. Like um, there's a beautiful cemetery outside of Boston, Mount Auburn, where I think it costs, you know, maybe eight or $9,000 um, to, to have uh, both the plot there and, um, and the burial. So, um, so it's, and, and then how that compares to like a conventional burial, it's often the same price or a little cheaper. Um, and again, those conventional burials often have like a, a big monument, um, a headstone, um, which will, again, something typically different than a, a natural burial where you wouldn't have, um, you know, maybe you'd have a flat granite marker on the ground, um, but not not a big old headstone, which is, is going to cost you more money. So um, cheaper or the same price as a conventional burial, typically more expensive than it than than cremation, running between two and three thousand dollars, and maybe more. And we've got about a minute left, but I do want to ask. You know, you've been breaking down the financial costs for us, but what about the environmental costs? Like, do you know anything about the carbon footprint of a traditional burial versus a green burial? Yeah, um, you know, there's a stat from the Green Burials Association that a typical um, Typical conventional burial is like 
250 pounds of carbon. Um, and that's from the cement, you know, the um, some of those embalming fluids. Um, and here you're storing a little bit of carbon. I would, you know, hesitate to, to call this carbon storage, but um, it's, it's not like you're not the the only thing that you're doing is is um, using up some land, and there's some cemeteries that are are working to have um, like working with land trusts as a way to be like let's let's preserve this land, let's conserve this land. So you know there's these you know Vermont Forest Cemetery, um, this idea of using cemeteries as as land conservation. Um, this to compare to um, cremation that requires a little bit more energy to you know you've you've got this like hot fire um that you're you're burning um and and that'll that requires energy to to heat so um it's going to be less less energy intensive than than cremation for sure you've been listening to lexi krupp she's a science and health reporter for vermont public thank you so much for spending time with us today lexi thanks for having me you can check out more of her stories and creative ways to act on climate change by visiting nenc.news. And coming up next, we'll be talking with our very own Patrick Scahill here at Connecticut Public. He'll be on to chat about civil pasture and what exactly does that mean? You can join the conversation, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. We're back to continue our conversation about everything Earth Day 2023. Journalists from the New England News Collaborative are spending a week telling stories about how to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, environmental justice, and what's happening with climate efforts around the region. You can check out those stories by visiting nenc.news. And here to help us understand the concept of silver pasture is Patrick Scahill. He's Connecticut Public's reporter and digital editor, and he is now sitting across from me in the studio today. Welcome. <laughs> Hello, Kai. How are you? <laughs> Good. And we are so excited to have you um, to talk about civil pasture. So what exactly is that? And it sounds like this is not a new idea. Yeah. So uh, civil pasture is the intentional integration of trees, uh, forage, so grasses, um, and livestock on the same unit of land. 
the trees are producing a crop. They're providing shade to the livestock. The forage is obviously uh, grass that the cows uh, can eat or the sheep or whatever you're pasturing out there. Uh, and the whole system is managed. Um, and as you're saying, Kat, this is not a new idea. Uh, there are, you know, indigenous communities obviously did this for generations um, uh, longer than that in New England. It's gone on for thousands of years in uh, parts of Europe. Um, so not a new idea, but it's one that's kind of coming back uh, here in New England because for a long time, uh, when settlers came here, I mean, if you go hiking out in the woods, you see stone walls everywhere, right? They came in, came in they cle- cleared trees, they cleared stones uh, for farmland, um, and that's how they did farming. Um, but uh, now we're kind of thinking like, hey, there's a lot of trees. Maybe we should sort of integrate those into our farm landscapes. So it sounds like we're going back full circle a little bit. And so how is this different from what we normally see? You know, is there a reason why it's not integrated more? Because it seems more natural. But but why do you think we're just getting back to it now? Yeah. So, I mean, I think when I first came to the story, uh, when I pictured a cow grazing in a field, I pictured a, a big open field, right? That's sort of what you envision. You see a big open field, um, which uh, can have benefits for a farmer. It's a lot easier to manage, right? You don't have to do things to kind of you know keep the, keep the soil healthy and all that. Um, but it's not so great for the grass because uh, if it gets really hot or sunny and there's no shade, the grass burns off, it turns brown the animals can't eat that. Obviously, it's also uh, bad for the animals. I mean, I don't know if you've ever been to a party in the middle of the summer when it's really hot. It gets miserable really quick. Um, So uh, just like us, uh, you wouldn't want to be, you know, a cow doesn't want to be out eating in that kind of weather. Well, I love that you describe that because being from California, I actually do see a lot of cows in brown fields. So now I'm like, are they actually getting the nutrients that they're supposed to be getting? Um, someone can get the answer for me. So uh, we want to also hear from one of the farmers that you profiled. Uh, this, what, Who we're going to hear from is Joe Oray Fichet. He is a lecturer at the Yale School of Environment and the owner of Hidden Blossom Farm here in Connecticut. Let's take a listen. When you have a drought, the grass in a treeless pasture just stops. Like last summer, 2022, it was dry. I was still grazing. Well, my cows were still grazing. I don't eat grass, but the cows were grazing. And that was because I had silvopasture. It's 95 degrees and humid. Do you want to be out there eating a full buffet? You know, you don't want to do that. As a human, you're going to be like, this is miserable. Yeah, so I, I kind of stole Joe's thunder there a little bit, but but he you know he makes the same idea, right? There there are animal welfare benefits to this, but there's also um, climate resiliency benefits to farmers for this. If you have a system that is a little bit um, uh, you know more resilient to drought, which is happening more frequently here, um, we're seeing warmer weather here in Connecticut and all across New England. Um, then as a farmer, you can kind of you know shake that off a little bit, and that's 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 kind of almost like economic. It's almost sort of like insurance for you, right? It's it's sort of a free insurance policy that you can have to manage your land. So does this mean that there will be more biodiversity to help the soil if we do kind of go back to the non-open field scenario? And in turn, does that help the crops? Yeah. So one of the key benefits of this is, um, is well, one of the key things you need to do in this type of system, right, is manage it. So um, what does managing a silvopasture system mean? Well, um, what, what it isn't is if you have a bunch of pigs just releasing them into the forest and saying, you know, go at it, go ahead and graze and forage and find mushrooms because the pigs will just destroy the woods. And one farmer I talked to actually said he did that and his forest, you know, basically turned into a moonscape. They just came in and trees that took 60 years to grow were destroyed in 60 minutes. And he was like, this isn't working. Um, so one thing that is sort of key to these types of system is what systems is what's called rotational grazing. Um, so you take your animals out, you would put them in what's called a paddock, which is sort of a managed space in, in, in a forested area. 
uh, and you let them graze there for a day or two, and then you move them to let the you know the soil recover. Um, and if you do that right, um, you know you're going to have soil that's healthier. It's going to be getting excrement from the animals. Uh, it's going to be getting uh, the right amount of sunlight um, from uh, the sky because the trees are going to be spaced properly. Uh, that's going to allow the grass to grow, the forage to grow, um, which is going to make it more resilient against things like erosion from you know the wind or the rain, um, and it's going to make it more resilient to drought as well. So I had no idea that pigs can be so destructive and yeah. helpful at the same time. <laughs> and so we've got about two minutes left, but I do want to ask you, you know, it's, it sounds kind of obvious, but how does this help to manage climate change and what does this look like at scale? Yeah. So here in New England, the primary benefit for farmers is is uh, mitigation against drought. So again, when you have this type of land, um, it hold, the soil holds water better um, and uh, it's able to deal with dry periods uh, much better. So the grass doesn't get all uh, brown and the you know the cows can continue to forage as uh, as Joe was was saying. So here in Connecticut and in New England, I mean it's not so much a, a climate um, mitigation thing. Yeah, I mean obviously if you leave a few trees standing up in in farmland, that's better than clear cutting the entire thing because carbon in trees and carbon in soil is better than carbon in the atmosphere. Um, but it's more of a it's more of an adaptation mechanism, I would say, in New England. And just real quickly, you know, what what might this look like for farmers in the future? You know, buying land and not completely clearing out the forest. Like, are there challenges in doing that? Yeah, I mean, th- there's also another economic benefit here too, particularly if you rent farmland, which is it's a lot easier to rent land that has trees on it versus going in and renting a treeless pasture. Um, so that's another benefit that farmers said too. You know, you can go in and buy a plot of farmland with, with that's forested, maybe clear it out just a little bit um, to allow for a silvo pasture to be set up, and that's going to be a lot more affordable than going in and buying a clear a clear cut plot of land. You've been listening to Patrick Scahill. He's our reporter here at Connecticut Public, as well as a digital editor. Thanks so much for spending time with us today and explaining to us what silver pasture is. You're welcome. Up next, we're going to hear from a journalist from WCAI in Massachusetts who's been reporting on construction waste and how some companies are paving the way to do better recycling. You can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR, or leave us a comment on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. It's our April Fun Drive. If you're enjoying what you're hearing this hour and want to support our radio station with a pledge, you can go online to ctpublic.org slash donate. Just a quick reminder for our listeners out there. And to continue our conversation on all things climate-related for Earth Day 2023 is Eve Zuckoff. She's a climate and environmental journalist for CAI, and she's here to talk about the impacts of construction waste, Eve, thanks so much for joining us today. Hi, thank you for having me. Honestly, I'm having one of those moments where I'm like, this is a huge area when it comes to waste, and I just never think about it until I read your report. So Eve, can you talk about how did you get the story idea and uh, the process of you learning about the amount of construction waste that's produced every year? Was it a surprise to you? Oh my gosh, absolutely it was. I think it will be to most people. I can't wait to kind of roll that out slowly here in this conversation, Um, but to drum it up a little bit before we get there. um, This story came to me um, a little bit randomly. My my editor was having a conversation with someone at his kid's school dance, uh, and they said, have you heard of this company on Cape Cod called Waste Knot? Um, They are this, they take recycling, they recycle uh, construction 
materials from homes before they're torn down. And he said, I never heard of this. Our climate environment reporter, Eve Zukoff, would love to hear about this. And he was right. So I spent the day with this company called Waste Not. I have so much more to say about uh, the women who run that company. Um, but basically, it, it introduced me to this world of construction and demolition waste. And um, yeah, drum roll, please, here for the number. 30 to 40% of what ends up in our landfills is just construction and demolition waste. And that's everything from the carpets that you rip out of your house when you get a new set of kitchen cabinets. It's obviously a bigger project. Um, you know, it's, it's new floorboards. It's so many things that we kind of, uh, many people can exchange in their homes without really thinking twice about the waste, but it, it really adds up in our landfills. I was going to do a drum roll sound, but I didn't think I was going to be able to do that stat justice. So <laughs> did not go there. Uh, but you mentioned the women that you, you talked to for Waste Not. And yes, let's definitely drum roll on that. And can you tell us about that experience and what do they do? Yeah. So there are these two women uh, named uh, Anne and Liz um, who live on Cape Cod. And, and basically they uh, had worked in the construction industry as developers for 25 years in kind of greater Boston area. And they would build new apartments and kind of do all kinds of traditional developer activities. And when they both moved to Cape Cod, they had just this lifetime of experience realizing, oh my God, there were so many times where we would go into a building to do a gut renovation and we would just throw away all of this stuff that could be put to better use um, by somebody who, who needs it. And so I spent uh, a good amount of time, a full day with Ann and Liz seeing kind of soup to nuts, a, a bunch of different things that they do. I, I didn't get a, a chance to go with them to a job site where they actually tear everything out of a house, but they took me to their storage garage where they keep so many of the things that they pull out of homes. Um, and so it's this storage garage that's just filled with uh, bathroom vanities in perfect condition, new fridges, uh, a two-year-old uh, boiler was there. It's just in perfect condition. Uh, transom windows, antique doors. I mean, you name it. This this garage was stuck to the brim. Um, and I also went with them to a woman's home. And this woman uh, had been given a bunch of materials by Ann and Liz um, to build uh, an in-law suite for her mother, who has Parkinson's, who was going to move into her home soon, and a little playhouse in, in her backyard for her children and foster children. And did you learn how did Anne and Liz get into this? Because I, I feel like like a lot of things, it feels very self-explanatory, but it had to it, it took the two women to sort of explore this and turn it into like a real thing. Yeah, I mean, and so what they're doing, the technical term for it is is deconstruction. That's what they're experts in. Um, I, I think, you know, as I mentioned, just doing construction for so many years, I think it it kind of caught up to them and they were like, we can do something else. Um, and, and the real drive, the thing that, as they said, gets them to a freezing cold job site in the middle of winter um, is to get materials that they're pulling out of these homes to people who need them. Uh, they were telling me just stories upon stories of, of the people who end up inheriting these perfectly good materials that are pulled from homes. So the day that I was with them, they said, oh yeah, you see those massive Anderson sliding glass doors? Um, those are going to a local firefighter. He's a veteran. He's coming to pick those up later today for a house that he just, first time home homeowner that he just bought. 
Um, they had given a bunch of materials to a single mom uh, who had three kids. They got her, her dishwasher broke, and that's a big expense. So they went over there with a new dishwasher, brand new dishwasher, basically. So I think that is um, what keeps them going. But this idea of deconstruction, they didn't invent it. It's actually bigger on the West Coast is what they were telling me. Uh, there's m much more of kind of a community out there and actually some local bylaws that require much more deconstruction-minded uh, activities, especially in the uh, building world. Um, and so I think they they kind of saw what was going on and didn't see anything in, in our community and just realized uh, we will not make nearly as much money as, as we did in the construction world, but this is important. We can make a difference in our community this way. And did you get a gist of how much they were able to sort of salvage or recycle? And do they resell it or donate it? Or what does that look like? Yeah, the way that their business works is uh, about 90% of what they pull from homes is um, donated. And that's kind of a very important part of this, because the way that this is financially worthwhile for homeowners that want to do a deconstruction on their home or beach home um, is that you can get a tax write-off if you donate um, for everything you donate. So Ann and Liz, most of what they are able to pull out of a home that's being deconstructed goes straight to um, a resale shop in Western Massachusetts. It's loaded onto, you know, 26 foot trucks shipped there right away. And then some of what they're able to pull out goes to their storage garage where I was with them. Um, and that's often the stuff that they say, we want to keep this here because we know this is going to fly out of here. Like fridges are always really helpful to keep around. Um, yeah, dishwashers, they said they keep dishwashers. They can't keep dishwashers for more than a couple days at a time. So they keep those, but 90%, yeah, of what's coming out of these homes is, is donated. And they're, they're able to pull up an enormous amount. Like I was asking them to quantify for me, what, what are you getting exactly? And they said they've pulled up over an acre of hardwood flooring and diverted it from uh, landfills in the last several years since they started this company, just 2017. They've saved roughly 570 kitchen cabinets and 500 windows. Those are bigger items, but sometimes they'll even go into homes. And, you know, I'm talking to you from Cape Cod, where we have an incredible disparity between the wealthiest and the poorest people who live here. And the wealthiest people can buy beachfront properties um, and then gut them completely and turn them into beautiful, beautiful mansions by the sea. Uh, and sometimes they were telling me they'll go into those and, you know, that home before um, they'll they'll open up a um a little closet and there will still be linens or in the middle of, you know, the kitchen inside a cabinet, there will be martini glasses. So they're pulling everything from, you know, incredibly heavy boilers to martini glasses out of homes. That sounds like the most amazingly ridiculous yard sale that could ever <laughs> happen. And I mean, that's so much flooring and so many kitchen cabinets. I cannot, I cannot believe it. But I think yeah. it, it, I, you paint a great picture because I think it really shows us the sort of the enormity of what they're able to to salvage and and mm -hmm. what we're actually using for you know these properties. And so we're actually going to about we're going to hear from Felix Heiser, who teaches architecture and directs the circular construction lab at Cornell University, as well as Anne, uh, who you profiled for this piece. Can you tell us a little bit about both of them? 
Yeah. So um, I'll start with Anne because I just had so much fun talking to her, honestly. Um, Anne Jarosowicz um, is is a person who, yeah, spent years and years in development. And she just a couple of years ago started this company with her friend Liz and uh, has just watched it taken off. And she's a little bit of a she's she's got like a tough Bostonian thing about her, but just the biggest heart and and actually her dream with all of these materials someday I'll just throw out there for any investors listening to your show. I'm sure they are. Um, she really wants to kind of adapt the company into something that allows her to build tiny homes out of all these materials. They're often, you know, if you have windows, doors, flooring, kitchen cabinet stuff, bathroom stuff, like you could actually build little kits of tiny homes out of what they um, rescue. So she's a she's a dreamer and she's a helper in the world. Uh, and then Felix Heisel, yeah, it's this um, German professor at Cornell University who just thinks in incredibly deep ways about all the different things that go into how we build homes and buildings and how we make them more sustainable going forward. So. I think there's actually a lovely contrast between the two of them, both helpers, but in very different pockets um, and needed pockets. Well, let's take a listen to those pockets right now. Methane emissions from landfills, for example, are one of the key drivers of global warming. Um, 40% of the volume of our landfills are just construction waste. And so this is an enormous problem. So in 2018, 600 million tons of waste was created by construction and demo debris. 600 million tons. I mean, that's insane. It's absolutely insane. And as you see, this stuff is really useful. You come across these materials, and it just feels crappy to throw this stuff in a dumpster because you know somebody somewhere needs it. I think the numbers in these pockets is pretty alarming. You've got 40% of the volume of landfills are just construction waste, while in 2018, 600 million tons of waste was created by construction and demo debris. So I, this leads to a lot of different ways of, uh, like we've been saying, you know, salvaging, recycling, and whatnots. Upcycling furniture has also become another trend in recent years, but it seems to be much more than that. Is that the case, Eve? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think that Anne and Liz um, uh, are absolutely champions of upcycling, but with what they're doing is something different. It's saying, you know, we, because I think upcycling, in my mind at least, there's this image of, you know, you can go to a thrift store and buy a beautiful, but maybe seen better days dresser, give it a fresh sanding, coat of paint, sell it on Facebook Marketplace for a markup. Uh, and that's great for people to make money. It's great to keep, you know, um, things out of the waste stream. But I think what Liz and Anne are trying to do with deconstruction is actually much bigger than that. What they're really hoping to do is is donate everything that they're they're pulling out of homes. Um, they're also kind of accepting implicit in the work that they do that just because something maybe has seen 20, 30 years of life doesn't mean it needs it needs that fresh coat of paint. I mean, the, the homeowners who they end up giving this stuff to are more than welcome to transform um, the things that end up with them. But I think that there's something actually really important about saying <sighs> So much of what we already have is perfectly good, and it doesn't need all the bells and whistles that I think we require 
or some people feel that they need to have more aesthetic homes. Like some things are just well built and they're ready for a new home instead of, you know, us going out to a, a big box store and, and buying something fresh. So I don't want to poo-poo upcycling, but um, I think that there's something a little philosophical, philosophically different about what they do. And so I guess that also leads to my next question is, you know, should we be changing the materials that we use in construction and rethink how we build houses, especially, you know, focusing on preserving existing buildings and so not constructing new ones? You know, what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, absolutely. This is something I talked at length um, about with, with Felix Heisel from Cornell. And he was saying, you know, deconstruction is great, but before we even get to deconstruction, what we should be doing is looking at buildings uh, and homes that exist. And instead of tearing them down, our first question should be, okay, well, maybe that building is at the end of its useful life in this capacity, but how can we adapt it to be something else? How do we keep the structure there, keep the, the kitchen in this spot, but build an extra room or build, you know, add something to a building rather than tearing down an enormous amount and using new materials for it. Um, so the first thing we should be looking to do is just adapt a building. And then I think another part of his work, because he's looking at every part of a building's life cycle, is when we are building a new building or when we do decide to adapt and we're bringing in new materials, how do we choose materials that um, take in uh, the building's entire uh, you know, next 20, 30, 40, ideally 50, 100 years of it being up. So how do we install carpeting that isn't put down with toxic glues and adhesives? Like there are ways to have better versions of so many of the materials that we use. And that's new materials, but also, again, even better is secondhand materials. If there's a building that has to be torn down, how do we really carefully do what Ann and Liz do and, you know, pry up each uh, floorboard individually so that that can go into a new home. I say that knowing that it is more time, more extend, more cost to do deconstruction uh, than just plain old demolition. Felix Heisel was telling me, uh, you know, to do deconstruction, you need roughly six times more laborers um, than on a construction site. And sorry, um, sorry, Eve, I do have to uh, interrupt us because we're running out of time. Um, oh, sure. No I'm sorry. Worries. You've been forever. listening to Eve Zuckoff. <laughs> she's a climate and environmental journalist for CEI, and she's been reporting on the impacts on construction waste. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm Catherine Shen. Today's show is produced by Tess Terrible. Corey Princell of the New England News Collaborate- Collaboration contributed to this report. Thank you so much for listening today. <laughs>